Interior Motives is a podcast that amplifies the unique voices and interior lives of Black and brown people from various industries, backgrounds, and walks of life. Visionaries who have overcome adversities and are doing extraordinary things in the world and in their communities, yet like you and me, reflect the complexities of the human condition. Hello, beautiful people. This is Shailen Foster, and welcome to another episode of Interior Motives. Today's conversation is with the phenomenal Tamara Winfrey Harris as she shares her gems regarding her new book, Dear Black Girl. You don't want to miss it, so take a moment, relax, grab a cup of coffee or some tea, and let's talk. Tamara Winfrey Harris is a writer who specializes in the ever-evolving space where current events, politics, and pop culture intersect with race and gender. She says, I want to tell the stories of Black women and girls and deliver the truth to all those folks who got us twisted, tangled up in racist and sexist lies. I want my writing to advocate for my sisters. We are better than all right. We're amazing. Well-versed on a range of topics, including Beyonce's feminism, Rachel Dolezal's white privilege, and the Black church and female sexuality. Tamara has been published in media outlets, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Cosmopolitan, New York Magazine, and the Los Angeles Times. And she has been called to share her analysis on media outlets, including NPR's Weekend Edition, and Janet Mock, so popular on msnbc.com and on university campuses nationwide. Tamara's latest book is Dear Black Girl, Letters from Your Sisters on Stepping into Your Power. Her first book, The Sisters Are All Right, Changing the Broken Narrative of Black Women in America, was published by Barrett and Kohler Publishers in 2015 and called A Myth-Busting Portrait of Black Women in America, by the Washington Post. The book won the Phyllis Wheatley Award, Indie Fab Award, Independent Publishers Living Now Award, and the IPPY Award. So without further ado, please give it up for the phenomenal Tamara Winfrey Harris. How are you doing, Tamara? Wow. Awesome. I am so excited to have you today on Interior Motives. Well, I am so sorry that we had to reschedule. That is a-okay. Life happens, and I'm just so blessed to have you. I am looking forward to it. All right. So, how have you been? As well as can be, as we all are, with all this stuff going on, but... It's been a busy few months, and it seems like it's calming down a little bit, so I'm good. Yeah, yeah. You getting back out in the world? <laughs> yeah, I, got my, I get my second shot on May 2nd, and then the streets won't be able to hold me. I know that's right, girl. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm getting mine on the, actually, next Saturday. And yeah, it's been, it's just been a strange experience. Very and um, I never thought that I would feel so cooped up and isolated. 
you know, especially being an introvert, but uh, even for me, this has been a lot. Like I'm an introvert too. And the first several months were like, why do we ever need to leave the house again? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And then I was like five months in, I'm like, what's happening? Like what's happening? I don't know what this is. <laughs> I haven't been to a mall, a store. I mean, actually, I went to the mall today earlier, and I was like, I haven't been to a mall in almost a year. I know. I I haven't. I, I'm just like that's crazy. Like not even to you know a small strip mall. I just, I, I was telling my husband when we both have, like, we both have our second shots coming up uh-huh. in early May. I was like, I just, I just want, like, I haven't sat in a restaurant in mm-hmm. right year or a theater or a, oh my gosh. I know, I know, I know. Okay, so we will get started. Awesome. All right, so. Your latest book, Dear Black Girl. Yeah. Let me just say this. I, you know, I wasn't sure what to expect. I mean, I knew it was a compilation of of letters and essays and so on. And I, I was so blown away by the book because it, it really spoke to me. You know what I mean? I, I really felt seen. Sure. And I didn't, ex- I didn't anticipate that because I knew it was for probably your, the population that you were gearing it for was, was for younger women, would you say? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is. It's written, Black girls are centered. And I have said sort of the sweet spot for the book is, you know, girls 15 to like early 20s, like college age. But that said, I mean, I knew even reading the letters myself that it was cathartic when I started receiving letters. So I knew that like it was something for Black women as well, you know? Yeah, it's definitely a multi-generational experience, I felt. Black girls of all ages. Of all ages, (laughs) of all ages. And yeah, I mean, it was like meditative. It was therapeutic. And I was thinking, I've been working with teenagers and young adult women for over 30 years now. And I definitely would recommend that all Black girls and girls of color or girls from marginalized communities, that they would have this book. I I mean, I just think it's, I think, I feel so strongly about this book because it just really was so affirming in so many ways, on so many levels. And so kudos to you. This is, this is beautiful work, beautiful compilation. So, so, so happy. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. So now, before we get into that, um, a little bit more of the, the book, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about your journey, okay? You've had an incredible career as a writer and an activist as well as a cultural commentating space as well. So now you're, you're from the Midwest, right? You're from Gary, I am. Indiana. Yes, I'm from Indiana. Okay, so I'm from Wisconsin, so I can, I was feeling the Midwest vibes, so. 
you know. <laughs> so tell me more just about your journey. So I am, I have always wanted to be a writer, even when I was growing up as a little black girl and I'm from Gary, Indiana. So Northern part of the state and right outside of Chicago. You know, after I graduated from college, after a couple years working for a newspaper, I switched over to PR and marketing. And that's how I built my career. For the majority of my career, I was, you know, working for agencies and museums and brands and doing all that stuff. But I wasn't doing a lot of writing for myself. But my husband and I, we ended up moving to central Indiana about 15 years ago. Um, moved into um, sort of a small city just north of Indianapolis that, you know, especially at the time was very, very much majority white. And I always say that, like, you, you, you never feel your blackness as much as when you like, like it's in relief when everything around you is the opposite of you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I started writing again for myself. And I started with a blog and then, you know, started doing more like cultural criticism in other platforms and then started to get published and soon found that I was having the writing career that I always wanted. But I just started it a little late. Right. Um, and, you know, I folk have focused on race and gender and kind of the ways they intersect with politics and pop culture and current events and those things. And then I reached a personal, like, goal, something that had always been on my list, which was to, you know, have a book published in 2015. And that first book was The Sisters Are All Right, yes, Changing the Broken Narrative of Black Women in America. Yeah. Um, and that was the precursor to this book now. Yeah. yeah, both wonderful books, wonderful books. So, wow. I know you've had some thoughts about the Black Midwest. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you, you know, I, you, you know, I couldn't go past that. I, I, <laughs> I just like, can you just drop some gems uh, and some insights about that? Well, I think the major thing that I fight for people to realize is that we exist. We exist and we have contributed a lot both to this country and to Blackness. Um, but when we have conversations about the Midwest, the Middle West, we always leave Black people out, usually around politics. And they start talking about, but, but what will the people in the Midwest understand? And what about the conservative white people in the Midwest? As if, you know, there aren't a host of, you know, Black people and Latinx people and all over the Midwest who have been here for a long time. Um, and we saw what the power is of people of color in the Midwest. We saw that Wayne County was able to turn Michigan blue. Yeah. Uh, we, we have always been here and we're left out of the discussion even in places where we're numerous, like Gary, Indiana, and Milwaukee, and Chicago. Hey, like Milwaukee. Those, exactly. <laughs> all of those places are part of the Midwest, too. But this narrative that the Midwest is, is all good, sturdy, white, conservative farmers with their flags and pickup trucks is one that America clings to. But I think we are also left out of 
when people talk about blackness you know yeah. blackness people often define as southernness or east coast it's that you know it's either new york or it's or it's atlanta absolutely um, again leaving out the the large fingerprint that the midwest has on our culture motown came from detroit came detroit, from yeah the Jacksons came from Gary, Indiana. Right. Prince came from Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Um, the civil rights movements that are going on right now were because of things that happened in Ferguson mm-hmm. and Minneapolis. Barack Obama came from Chicago and his what like and his because of his wife. Right. All of those things, you know, all of that is Midwesternness. Um, there are more of us living in the Midwest than there are on the West Coast and Northeast combined. Mm. And people need to know that. Absolutely. You know, I've been watching um, Soul of the Nation. Mm-hmm. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you the question that Sonny Hostin asked folks. And that is, what was the moment that you knew you were Black? I think it would it would have to be very early, like three or four, because my family, when I was three years old, moved to a neighborhood in Gary, Indiana, that had been very much white, white and a place where Black people knew not to hang around too much. But when Richard Hatcher became the mayor, so one of the first Black mayors, of of a city in the country, all the white people put their their put for signs up. A lot of them, uh, which changed the the face of Gary, Indiana, literally. So my parents, having a young family, moved into this neighborhood in Miller Beach, Indiana, in Gary, where you know I remember one of our ma- neighbors on one side didn't speak to us. Um, one of the neighbors across from us, it was a a woman and her mother, her mother rarely spoke to us. Like there were still the schisms of, of you know, uh, desegregating a neighborhood, even though we weren't the first black family, I think we were the third black family on the neighborhood, but we felt that at a very, at a very, very early age. Yeah, yeah. It was funny because I was thinking about the same thing and I, I attended an elementary school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, on the the north side. And my father was the principal of this elementary school. And so I would say it was predominantly white, probably about maybe 70%. And then that maybe that 30, 20 to 30% was African-American and Hispanic and and other. And uh, I... I probably was about six, maybe first grade. And I remember liking the boy that sat Mm -hmm. next to me. And he was a white boy, blonde hair, blue eyes. And I, (laughs) I think there was a moment where I may have even went so far as to try to kiss him on the cheek. And this was, no, mind you, this was the 70s. Uh huh. And his his mother um, actually was an aide at the school, a teacher's aide, and she seemed nice. And I will never forget the moment where he came back. It was maybe I don't know, some days after that had happened, and he came back and he told me he said, "My mom t- said that I can't like you because you're black." And 
it was a moment. I'm just saying it was a moment and I, I, I didn't know what to think about it. I didn't know what to think about it. (laughs) Like it stays with you, right? Because there are tons of slights that I'm sure you had over like over our, over our whole school careers. Like there are lots of them, but those, those, like those racial hurts are like, you know, because I had a, a similar in first grade, a girl that had been part of our friend, our tight friend group. Uh, her family moved, so she went to another school. Later, I found out that she had had this big birthday party and had invited all of our other friends except for me mm-hmm. um, because I was the only Black one. And her mom was a teacher at our school, at the school she left. So her mom taught with my mom. My mom was a teacher there too, always seemed to be nice and pleasant, but I was left out of that experience. And that is some, that is something I never forget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I will never forget that as well. And I think because I think for me, it was such a time where I think that the Black children were trying to find their way in that space. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It just wasn't a sure thing that if you were Black, that you were just going to be friends. You know what I mean? It, it yeah. wasn't. It wasn't necessarily a given in um, those type of spaces. So then the white children aren't necessarily embracing you either, you know, and I experienced that even more so when I moved, when we moved out to a predominantly white suburban area um, outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Mequon. And it was extremely, um, I mean, extremely racist in terms of, you know, every day there was a racial slur throne you know the n-word was commonplace so yeah it, it's it's just interesting but i do remember in response to this the boy john that i liked i there was another there was another girl that i think i, I thought well if he doesn't like me then he must like this girl she was blonde hair blue eyes as well her name was marlene and i remember specifically getting a ring out of the cracker jack box Okay. And bringing the ring to school to give to him to give to her. Wow. <laughs> it was almost like, well, if I, you know, if I can't have him, you know. Wow. Maybe, maybe this will bring uh, happiness to the two of them. It was just, and when you think about it, just from through the lens of a little girl, a little black girl, I guess there's all sorts of implications. So question, I know you're supposed to be interviewing me, but have you ever told that story to a Black girl? Evan, this is the first time I'm telling you. I'm telling you. This is the first time I've ever really shared that story. I think I may have shared it with my daughters, you know, many, many years ago. But yeah, I've never shared that story. I, you know, and that's kind of one what I'm realizing and one of the reasons that I wanted to create Dear Black Girl is because we don't. We carry those things and it I, it's a hurt that isolates us and we sometimes feel shame and we feel hurt. But there are Black girls feeling that same shame and hurt every day. And if they lose us saying this happened to me and lose us sharing our experiences and about not just the hurts, about all of the things, 
then wow, like what, what a loss that is for our relationships with each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in terms of just the book, talk to me just about your creative process with the sisters are right. When you decide, okay, I'm going to write this book. What, what did that process look like for you? So that was, <laughs> that was a little different than this one. Cause I felt like once I was loose. Or, so originally the idea that I, that I was selling in my proposal to publishers was a book about black women in marriage. Because around the time, that was when everybody was talking about Black women in marriage, really talking about why they felt no one would choose Black women. Mm. Um, and that was the tenor of the conversation. And it made me so angry. So that was the book that I initially pitched. But, you know, my publisher pushed me to explore something larger than that. And the more I dug into it, I realized that the same stereotypes that underpinned that conversation underpin a lot of conversations about Black women, from our health to our strength to our sexuality, motherhood, all of those things. Right. And so it kind of became, here's my opportunity to speak back on all of the broken ways that I see people talking about us. So as I looked at the different categories in the book, I decided what is what is the major theme? What is it that I want to say? What is it that I want to say about Black women and our health? What is it I want to say about Black women and motherhood? What is the case I want to build? And then I set about doing the research that would, you know, bolster that. And the women that I interviewed really helped me to shape a lot of the narrative because, I mean, as you know, we're we're not a monolith. We have so many different experiences. So, you know, the women I interviewed also help with the nuance and getting at all of the different variations in how we deal with misogynoir in our lives. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And so such a process. Did you learn? I know you learned a lot about just all the ways in which Black women show up or they just live their lives in the world. So in this process, what did you learn about yourself? Wow. Every, you know, with both of my books, it has challenged me to remember that I am all right as a Black woman, because I think that's, I think as Black women, we have to choose ourselves again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the sexism and the racism that we confront can seem relentless. And it is so much a part of the fabric of the society that we live in, that sometimes there are little, you know, there are little concessions we make, little changes we make, things that happen to us that we kind of bury and absorb. Right. And so reading the stories of other women for the first book, but then also reading what other women would have to say to younger women has been powerful for me because I think those messages, the messages in these letters are as valuable if you're 50 or if you're 15. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's the kind of dialogue that I think we should always, always be having. So in terms of, because I thought the compilation of letters in Dear Black Girl 
it was just so all inclusive, you know, like there's something there, as you said, it's, it's, it's multi-generational and there's something there for everyone. There had to have been a great amount of intentionality mm-hmm. to really bring out, I guess, the, the beauty and the, the, the intersectionality of just the, and the diversity, just the diversity of, of who we are. So what was that? What was that process like? How did you go about that? I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad that was apparent. Like that makes me really happy. So initially, you know, one of the reasons the book came to be is because I was doing a workshop, an intergenerational workshop, mm-hmm. and there were 12 girls that were participating. And I just thought it would be neat for them to get letters from Black women. Mm-hmm. And so I went on Facebook and kind of offhandedly asked if anyone would write 12 letters or, you know, could I get 12 women to write letters? And I got this amazing outpouring from Black women, more than 50 letters from around the world. And it was absolutely beautiful. And so many of those letters made it into the book. I did give the books to those girls and uh, in question, but a lot of the letters that I had made it into this book. But a lot of them were centered around advice and inspiration just generally, which I think was really important. But knowing what I know about Black girls and our experiences, I wanted, one, I wanted Black girls to see themselves in all the ways they show up in the world. And I wanted to make sure that I was addressing some things that we know Black girls go through uh, disproportionately. For instance, we know that 60% of Black girls will experience sexual assault before they turn 18. Absolutely. you know, so then I proactively sought out women who could write about some of those experiences and who could write about some of those identities um, to make sure that those Black girls felt included. Mm, yeah, so important. I mean, so much of the conversation within the context of letters, it, it really resonates and touched a chord of here's a collective group of women that are willing to be vulnerable and to really lay some real talk on the table. And so I just, as much as it resonates with all of us, did you get any flack from anybody in certain spaces, particularly in uh, religious spaces? Not yet. (laughs) And that, you know, my, that is kind of my fear. I have felt a fear that, you know, this book may not make its make its way into the hands of girls who needs it because i know that there are spaces in our you know more traditional and conservative spaces in our community that may not be ready to deal with some of the issues included in it and i know that a lot of girls groups are sometimes found in those spaces and so i you know it has been a drive that i've been doing since the book came out to find groups and organizations and people that will get books to those groups so that girls can get them in their hands and they'll be in a space that has enough you know wraparound services and supports that they can really have good conversations about things like sexuality and identity and sexual assault and incarceration and some of the things that are real parts of some black girls' lives. Because I think to ignore them 
will then make, you know, will make a girl, we already talked about the feeling of isolation that racism brings. Yes. But, you know, if a black girl picks up a book, for instance, and she has experienced sexual assault and you don't say anything about it, you know, that contributes to her feeling like she is alone and that she is isolated in her experience, even when she isn't. And then it also causes folks to really think about the way in which as a community, not only are we not courageous enough to have some of these conversations, but how else does sexual assault or sexual violence or incest play out within the context of our communities, our churches, our families? You know what I mean? So it's like this macro issue that when we really boil it down to a micro level and expose it for what it is within our intimate spaces, then what? You know, because right. like so many families don't really feel comfortable having these conversations. Right. And like even ones that are not as traumatic, right. you know, like, you know, a woman wrote about having dark skin, growing up with dark skin right. and that feeling. And, you know, our tendency is when we have those kind of colorism discussions is to, you know, just tell a girl, you're beautiful, Black is beautiful. Like, you know, we pass it off and don't really dig into it. And that doesn't always work. Because one Black girl told me, like, it's great that my grandmother thinks I'm pretty. Like, so she, she had an experience like yours. She told me it's great that my grandmother thinks I'm pretty and that, you know, Mrs. Whoever at church thinks I'm pretty. But, you know, Chad at school doesn't. And right now, like, that's the thing that matters more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my, both, you know? of my, both of my daughters have, have shared that with me. Right. My youngest, who is a beautiful chocolate girl, and uh, her experience being in a predominantly white school was just as you said. It was not enough for us to talk about how beautiful she is and how, how much we love her skin tone. But they're, because they're getting it out in the world. They're getting right. the anti-Black <laughs> attitudes from other people that, that, are, that are their peers. Yeah. And I think that that's another reason why this book really hit home for me. Because I'm thinking, wow, if I had have had this book to kind of help reinforce and to even shed greater light on this larger conversation about whether it's colorism or racism or body positivity and or even just about the ways in which we're diverse you know as as black girls and black women wow things could have been maybe perhaps a lot easier for a lot of mothers and women across the board and that's why i made sure I created a reader experience kit that actually is available at my website, TamaraWinfreyHarris.com. That's free and it's downloadable because I wanted to give some, you know, offer some additional questions. So if you're reading the book and you're actually reading it along with a black girl, some additional questions that can kind of help you dig into issues about identity or you know, friendship or sexuality or whatever it is. And then also I talked to a, an educator and a psychologist to, for them to offer some hints on how you have good 
intergenerational conversations mm -hmm. because you have to be thoughtful, right? Because yeah. there's a power dynamic. Absolutely. You're the mom and right, you know, right. the daughter is the daughter. And when you start having, you know, detailed conversation, everybody has to know that it's okay to be open and honest and what are the boundaries and, and all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I was even thinking as a therapist, I, I remember when I perhaps worked with one of my first transgender clients. He was a teenager at the time, probably about 15. And that was about, I don't know, maybe 17 years ago. And thinking that had I had this type of resource available, it would have, I think, sparked an even more in-depth yeah. conversation as well as helped him in having more language and yeah. communicating with his mom about the transition that he wanted to take, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, you know, because it's not enough sometimes to you know that this is what I'm experiencing, this is what I'm feeling, but when you don't have quite the language, you know what I mean? Right. And that's why I wanted to also include some of those um, the know this section in the book mm -hmm. that offered some other resources, because I do know some of these things are big issues and a letter may open the door to a girl wanting more, wanting to, wanting to learn more, or, you know, where can I go for more information? What can help me talk to my mom about this or someone else about this? Or, I know I can't, I don't have anyone I can talk to about whatever the issue, so where can I go? Right, right. And even just reading a letter from a woman who has walked in a similar, walked in a similar path mm -hmm. or on a similar path is huge. Yes. Yeah, it's huge. Wow. So when you think about just the compilation of letters, was there a particular letter that really spoke to your 13-year-old or 18-year-old self? There wasn't really one that particularly spoke to me. It was peppered throughout. And, you know, one of the things I noticed is that even if the experience of the women who wrote letters is not exactly the same, mm -hmm. there are so many parts within the letters that we can relate to. So, you know, like the woman who wrote about growing up with dark brown skin, I don't particularly have dark skin, but I certainly, you know, remember being insecure about my looks, being insecure about my weight, you know, not seeing um, myself reflected in, you know, the people who were called beautiful and who were on the cover of magazines in the 80s, you know, so I, I relate to that. Another woman named Rochelle wrote this beautiful, beautiful letter about being raised by her grandparents and the wonderful things that they provided for her and her grandfather getting her her first car. Right, my right, dad, right. my daddy got me my first car and I was raised by my mom and dad, but there was still like, that letter still makes me cry because it yeah. makes me think about like the importance of, you know, having these great men who are role models in your life that you know will do anything for you. And, you know, so I think there are pieces throughout the letters 
in every letter that I relate to, even if the experiences were not mine. Yeah, yeah. I I, I have to say I had that that same experience throughout. I I was I kind of binged on on the book. Um, <laughs> So it was like, I, I'm like really into this. Yeah. <laughs> it had that type of effect. So when you think about, because I wanted to get your ideas about just kind of some of the shifts in terms of kind of some of the shifts, I've read some of your, your writings um, as it relates to the hypersexuality of, of, of Black women, particularly in the media. And so what have been some of the shifts? You know, because there's a kind of a movement now that particularly with uh, millennials and Gen Z's in terms of being very open about sexuality, whether it be about how their expression or sexual orientation or just their sexuality in general, as it relates to it being very expansive and ever evolving. So what have you noticed in terms of some of the shifts? It seems like, and it's funny because I just finished the manuscript for the second expanded edition of The Sisters Are All Right, Mm. which is coming out in October of this year. And one of the chapters, so much has happened in the six years since I first wrote that book. And Mm -hmm. one of the chapters that I really felt needed to be updated was the sex chapter. Um, (laughs) A lot has happened. (laughs) A lot has happened not just in women, younger women and girls having more language to describe their sex, their sexuality and sexual identity. Um, I'm running into a lot more young women who are like, I'm, you know, I'm poly, I'm, you know, bisexual, like exploring all the, all the spaces along the, you know, the Kinsey scale that you can fall. Right. But then there's also, and, and, you know, a society that feels more comfortable about, you know, women being, talking openly about their sexuality. But then there's an element of the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. Because when I interviewed, I interviewed women for the book and they talked about, younger women, and they talked about even though I remember one woman saying how, on the one hand, you were supposed to show your prowess, like, you know, she talked about growing, like, twerking, like, at school parties, like, you know, that was how you showed you knew what you could do. People expected you to be sexual, Mm -hmm. and girls were supposed to be sexy, so there was a lot of, on social media, looking sexy, taking pictures looking sexy. But there was still a line, like it's it's almost look like look like you're having sex, but don't have too much sex. Right. <laughs> it seems like the line is a lot is a lot finer than when you know perhaps you, from what you said, it sounds like we were about the same age, where we just had a just don't do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> now it's yeah. like look look like you're gonna do it, but do it, but don't do it too much. Like like it's right, right, right even more complicated right and we see like we see that in the public eye so you see like a cardi b or you see megan the stallion who is very openly sexual very sexual in her songs also very much a vocal advocate for black women 
But then when you see when she's a victim of domestic violence, then the fact that she has been openly sexual then comes back on her um, and people judge her because of that. Yeah, they do. Absolutely. Do you think it's, uh, there's a gender difference in terms of the judgment? Oh, most definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, we still, so the, the, the same, the very same rules that we always grew up with, you know, that men are supposed, men and men are supposed to be sexual, sexual aggressors. They can have all the sex they want. There are no limits there. And that women should be chaste and virginal are kind of the same. The only the only change, I guess, is that I guess the virginal is gone, but there's still this find your line. You still can't do too much. Right. Yeah. Your body um, count does not need to be, right. you know, yeah. Right. Yeah. And women are still disbelieved when they're the victims of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. And we're still sort of Puritans when it comes to actually talking about sex. So you can look like you have sex, but no one is talking to young women about consent and about pleasure and about, you know, how do you protect yourself and about like all of these really deep conversations that come along with being sexually active. I don't see society having those conversations in any greater number than they ever did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a real shame I notice with mm-hmm. our Black women, particularly around the pleasure piece. Yes. You know, it's almost like it, could, it may just be us as a race, too, because I think, obviously, historically, as you have talked about the hypersexuality and being hypersexualized by white folks, I don't know. It's there, I know that some of it stems from that. Right. Uh, and then also just being brought up in very conservative religious religion. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, go on. Yeah. And patriarchy, like, and yeah. patriarchy. Yes. And, you know, sometimes we do patriarchy better than anyone because the exactly. idea is that because white men have been at the, you know, the, the oppressors that that freedom looks like putting Black men in that same place instead of liberating everyone. Right. And so even some of the liberated sexuality, allegedly liberated sexuality that you see today is still about the male gaze. You know, even when you listen to some of the songs, it isn't about what makes me feel good. It's about making him feel, it's still very heteronormative and it's still very much about the male gaze. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. How do we have, I guess, different conversations that are, you know, more expansive of these things in terms of sexuality, or at least the expansiveness of sexuality? How do we have these conversations? You know, when I thought, you know, the book is is divided into chapters and most most chapters have like four or five letters in each one. Mm-hmm. The sex chapter, I imagined, would have four or five letters. And, you know, some woman would write about consent and another woman might write about pleasure. And, you know, I could not find, it was so hard to find Black women to talk to girls, write a letter to girls about sex. Mm. Could not do it. That is why there is one letter in that chapter. And it's an amazing letter. 
Like I think Toya did an amazing job of laying all of the things out that I, if I had a daughter, I would hope to say, kind of demystifying, saying that, you know, sex can be a wonderful thing, but, you know, it, a lot of responsibility comes with it, a responsibility to yourself, to your health, both emotional and physical, the, the responsibility about the, what the product of that sexual relations might be, learning about consent, learning about your partner, kind of all of those things, um, and learning your desires, learning what you're attracted to, and kind of breaking it down so it's not this mystical thing, forbidden thing you're not supposed to do, or you're supposed to do, but not act like you like doing it, and actually talking about having a deep and open conversation about what goes along with having sex. I don't think we do that. And I think the solution is starting to do that more with all of our children. Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate. I know that in school districts all across, you know, abstinence has been always the agenda that's pushed. It's it's unfortunate because students that I've worked with as, as young as fifth grade are experimenting and trying to find their place in it. And so it's like, okay, we're going we're gonna to we're gonna have to have more than an abstinent, abstinence conversation here. Yes. And as a matter of fact, one of the women I interviewed for the second edition of Sisters said just that. She's like, at the time, you know, we're, we're like, twerking at the school dance and you know all of this like really sexual music is coming out and she's like and then our high school sex ed class is all about taking a she's like we took a she's like I took a um chastity pledge or we had to sign someone came to school and we had to sign a chastity pledge which is absolutely like what <laughs> oh my goodness I mean it's Two steps forward, I guess. Right. <laughs> and then, wow. That's crazy. That's crazy. So when you were, tell me again, in terms of the letters, you went about getting the letters over what period of time? Did it, how long did it take? So the first batch of like the first 50 some letters came over the course of a, of a couple weeks. Okay. Um, and there's, you know, there's about a year or so between when I, when I first issued a call for letters and when it struck me that it would be great to write a book. Mm -hmm. And over that time, I continued to accept letters. As a matter of fact, people can still send me letters through my website or, or through the mail. Okay. And I still try to get them to Black girls. But once I decided, one, once I got the book contract, probably another three to four months where I had to do some really purposeful seeking letters. Because like I said, I knew I need letters from, you know, women who have biracial experience. I want a letter from a woman who has experience with incarceration. So then I had to kind of do some actual reaching out and identifying people. Um, but that first batch of letters came quickly <laughs> wow. really quickly wow that i mean that's that's actually beautiful to hear that um folks really wanted to be a part of such a collective experience 
Did many of the people that contributed, did they talk about their experience writing the letter and what it actually meant to them? A lot of the women said that it was cathartic for them as well. A lot of them said that they revisited things that they really hadn't really talked about since they happened or that they had never had the opportunity to put into words. Um, and in that way, I mean, it's, it's another example of how when we communicate with each other, we both win. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was extremely excited when to see the chapter Girl Interrupted, just having more in-depth information and dialogue about mental health. Was that intentional? It was, it was very intentional. It, I just, we have to do so much better for our children and for ourselves when it comes to mental health. Um, it pains me that Black girls don't get the support that they need. I know I have a, a dear friend who's a psychologist, and you know something that she told me always sticks with me when I have these conversations. And she says, "I get Black girls as clients through systems, not because people realize that they need help, and you know, mom or dad or somebody just bring you know brings her in. It's always." through the justice system, or she's been kicked out of school, or, you know, and she talked about the ways that when, you know, Black girls show their, and I'm sure, I mean, you know this, obviously, when Black girls show their emotional distress, authority, schools read it as aggression yes. instead of a need for help. And that just, that just, it just, it breaks my heart because we deserve better than that. Yeah. And it, you know, if if we don't work to get to get girls healthy when they're, you know, young, then how can they be healthy women? Absolutely. Who raise healthy families. Absolutely. I mean, it just reverberates. If, if Black girls aren't taken care of, it reverberates. We know that Black women are the heads of most households, statistically. So, you know, when we're not okay, nobody is okay. Right. <laughs> You're right. And, uh, and our millennial kids, young adults, they will let you know. Right. You know, do the work. Do the work. Right. Yeah. yeah. So true. So true. So in retrospect, what would you actually tell your 18-year-old self about life, love, and relationships? So I have thought a lot about this because people ask me this because I didn't write a letter. My letter is all of the things that the letters are wrapped in. So like the epilogue and the introduction and all of those things. But if I do this again, and you could probably assemble, like I could write this book over and over again because Black women have a limitless amount of wise things to say. Absolutely. But I would write about achievement because you know i've always been a high achieve i was a high achieving girl and an adult but understanding that it's okay not to be doing all of that all the time and that it's okay to just be sometimes and not to take on so many things you don't have to define yourself by those by those achievements you are okay without them i think that's the letter that i would tell my younger self great one it's a great one. So have you personally experienced a particular failure or something that you thought was a failure in life that actually became 
the catalyst for a major breakthrough or a major success? Not necessarily a failure, just I have, I have, you know, what led me to realizing that's what I would write in a letter was several months, you know, during this quarantine and during these last few months where I took on so much that I was being crushed under all the responsibilities that I had. Some of them were, that were, many of them, not just some, many of them were of my own making and having to question why I did all of that and what I was gaining from it and how, and was it really good for me? Like, what was it doing for my physical health? What was it doing for my mental health? Even though from the outside, it would look like they're all wonderful things to do, which meant I had to reckon with, you know, perhaps how I prioritize things and what's most important to me. And so, yeah, so not, not so much a failure, but realizing that I was in a really critical space that, that I had created for myself mm. and knowing that I needed to do that differently. What made you realize that you were in a critical space? I just, you know, there was a point maybe at the end of last year where I felt like I had so many responsibilities and so many things to do, and there was no way they were all going to get done. Okay. And I was paralyzed. Okay. Um, I don't even know where to, like, like I don't even know where to start with all of this stuff that, that uh, you know, that I need to do. Right. And, and being inert because of it and being really, really afraid to fail mm-hmm. and looking around and realizing that some of my should do's, must do's were not really must do's, you know? So, you know, at, over, the, over the last year, I was taking a class to get my yoga teacher certification and writing two books and... I'm the vice president at a community foundation full time, which is like more than a a week job. Yeah. (laughs) And I had to, in addition to just like life. Yeah. And I realized that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. So, I mean, being, you know, you talked about being kind of this a high achieving individual and someone that really strives for excellence. So did that, was that something that was just natural, that was inherent? Like, where, where did that come from? It's, you know, it's part my, it's part my personality. It is part my family personality. Both my parents are the work work hard, achieve a lot. You know, that is the message I got growing up. You know, we work. You know, my mom is still teaching after more than 50 years and showing no signs of ever wanting to retire. Wow. Um, so it's a, it is, it is both. And, and I think there, there's, it's a, it's a part of a culture of striving. I think that a lot of Black people who grew up, middle class Black people, Descendants of the Great Migration, I think that's built into our culture. When I was reading Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, I so identified with her family and all of the things that she learned about working hard and striving and being twice as good. It was that. It was that. Yeah, that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so hard to, not to unlearn it, but to just 
create something that is different. Let, or maybe give it limits because it's not necessarily right. a bad thing. No, no. But give it, give it limits and recognizing that success and achievement comes in all form, like all forms. Right. Right. It's not just about your degrees and how much money you make and your job and what you produce. It's also your emotional health and yeah. your physical health and the health of your family and, you know, all of those things. Yeah. yeah. Work-life balance, all of those things. Right. Right. Yeah. Work-life balance, uh, the uh, never-ending journey. So in terms of just dealing with difficulties of life and disappointments and loss, how do you, how do you cope with those things? How have you historically coped and how do you cope now? Because I'm thinking of even just if you haven't experienced a personal loss, just the collective grief of what we've been dealing with in the world of civil unrest, as well as, I mean, there's so many lives that have been lost between that and the pandemic. I think historically, I think I'm probably terrible at dealing with it, but trying to, trying to get better. I have been a lifelong emotional eater happy, worried, sad. Oh, um, yeah. You know, yeah. I was just I was just having this conversation yeah. <laughs> with two other women. We all struggle with the same thing. I'm like, please, but, please don't bring the carbs in the house, okay? No, my God. <laughs> no, I, my God. I, have, I have gotten way too close with the new cookie place in the neighborhood. Right, right. But I think, yo- like, yo- honestly, yoga has been so helpful for me. And it was so, like, I never could have attended when I signed up for 200-hour yoga teacher training that it would take place during a quarantine. Oh, wow. National pandemic. But I'm, I am grateful that I did. That's awesome. Because having those, like, having to meditate and learn about meditation and learning about breath work and thinking about my body and, you know, thinking philosophically about how I deal with things was wonderful over this last year. Mm, that's great. Yeah, just being still. And I think a lot of us yep. don't know what that looks like. And doesn't mean be still and be thinking about X, Y, Z all over yep. the place. You know, <laughs> just be still, be in the moment, clear your head. Wow, what a task that is for a lot of Black women. Or even, you know, what was the like mind-blowing thing for me when thinking about meditation is I was even turning that into <laughs> into like an opportunity to achieve because we're all clear my mind, clear my mind, don't think about anything. Oh my God, I thought about something. Failure, <laughs> you know, that the that the process of meditation isn't that nothing comes through your mind yeah. because that would be impossible as a human but that you are able to like to to re- realize that let that thought go and return back to your breath or return back to whatever it is so it's a choosing to come back again and again and again and that was the big light bulb learning you're not doing it wrong you're human um you're just choosing to come back to stillness yeah yeah and you know i have to say i miss yoga i was going to classes prior to the pandemic not being able to go has been tough because, and I know that I can do it at home, but I don't know. For me, I, I kind of depended on the classes. I depended yeah. on the teacher 
right in front of me. Is that bad? Is that? Well, no, because I feel like, I mean, I've, I've been doing it, but it's not the same. What, what, what I loved about taking yoga before the pandemic is that it was a time apart. It allowed me to set it aside from the rest of the day. And it felt like walking into a sanctuary and when they dimmed the lights and closed the door to the studio, like that was time for me in the yoga studio, separate from anything else. Right. Different when I'm like in my spare room office slash yoga studio with my work for tomorrow stacked up, and I can right, right, I'm right. I'm I'm looking at and the cat's harassing me because (laughs) he wants to know why I'm on the floor. Like it's it's different. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm glad I, I'm glad I, I'm glad you see me. <laughs> so yoga, great. Are there other like coping strategies that have been really helpful for you? I just always try to surround myself in like the company, really the company of black women mm-hmm. specifically, mm-hmm. just having awesome friends. And I do have awesome friends. Um, I could not ask for better. And so having them as a support system, as well as my family, is, is invaluable. What do you think your secret, uh, maybe not a secret, but what do, you, what do you think it is? What, what has proven to be really helpful in terms of sustaining long-lasting sisterhood and friendships? Because we know, let's, let's, let's be real, sometimes that can be a struggle for women in particular because we we want to we want to love we want to trust we want to surrender to some degree and be in that safe space but we've also dealt with the the other things such as loss and betrayal and abandonment so on and so forth so what would you say has been helpful for you i think you know, finding friends where we're on equal footing in the friendship. And when I say that, meaning that we are both giving and receiving, that we both can be open and honest with each other. We both can trust that we both support each other, that, you know, very often we end up in unequal or one-sided friendships and relationships, and we don't know better and we keep those going. I think the friends that I have now in my life and the friends from, you know, one of my oldest friends I have had since I was three years old. Mm. Um, and it's, and it's because we can have that kind of open and mutual, mutual relationship. Right. I think those are important. Right. Have you found um, that a lot of your closer friends, are they also writers or are they across industries? Some are writers. Some are, you know, advocates for Black girls. Some have been my friends since, you know, one of my other oldest friends, I met her sitting on the railing in front of, you know, middle school because we both love books. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we bonded that way. Like, I I have collected many friends from each stage of my life. So they aren't all writers. A lot of them are because, you know, we writers tend to be a strange bunch. And so we (laughs) gravitate towards each other. (laughs) 
How funny, how funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because actually I, I heard you on Demetria L. Lucas's podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of hers as well. So. <laughs> so in terms of, you know, I have to, we have to shout out um, the sisterhood of Alpha Kappa Alpha. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> speaking, speaking of excellence. Yes, yes, yes. And so what does that mean? for you in terms of having that affiliation? You know, part of it is, so like that speaks to the support of black women, right? You know, when I first published my book, the first book, some of the first women to come around me were sisters, you know, both in, you know, here in Indianapolis, but also in other places, you know, AKs welcomed me in Philadelphia and Detroit and lots of other places. It also, to me, is legacy because my mom uh, is an AKA. You better better speak that legacy. (laughs) (laughs) And so just having this common experience, and my sister-in-law, so having that common experience and that common bond is is beautiful. It is. It truly is. Uh, I'm just thinking back to my line sisters and we're trying to get our reunion together for our 35th coming up. Yeah. There's just, there's just something to be said for black women coming together for the greater good and sisterhood. It can look a a lot of different types of ways, but all in all, it just, it's a beautiful thing. It It is. It is. And so what does empowerment amongst women look like for you? I think for me, it means being able to walk into the room as my authentic self. Mm. I think that that is the most, that is what I hope for Black women and Black girls, is to be able to walk into anywhere fully as our full authentic selves and feel good about it and be able to stand in who we are. Yeah, to stand in truth. That's huge. That's huge. What do you think are a few things that really hinder that experience? Uh, Everybody else (laughs) in our society (laughs) that, I mean, sexism and racism, misogynoir um, of this society and the ways that it has crept into our communities and, and into us, the ways that we have internalized it. Mm-hmm. And the ways that we have to respond, you know, in um, Melissa Harris Perry's book, uh, oh, what is it? A Sister Citizen. Yeah, I have. Um, and, and she talks about the crooked room, like we exist in this in this crooked room, this skewed society that views us in this skewed way, and we have to figure out how to stand straight when this image of us that we're facing is not. It's it's warped. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. Yeah. That makes it really hard to even know what your authentic self is. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, all the code switching. (laughs) Right. That we do all day long. Which voice is mine? Which air is mine? Which I like, I don't know. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right, right, right. And just being able to fully integrate and be like, you know, this is all of me. Exactly. Like, I think respectability politics would say that we have to shape ourselves to be the antithesis of what white people say that we are, 
what is negative about us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, but that's not but that's not necessarily right because some some of the things some of some women are some of those things yes. you know, as I say in my book and some of those things there's nothing wrong with yes, I mean yes, absolutely yeah we are, we are fully human absolutely. you know absolutely yeah yeah what do you tell young writers Tamara about just the field in terms of how to have longevity and sustainability? One, write. Writers write. So find time to write. Don't do like me and spend like 20 years not writing and then catch up with it. Even if you only have a moment every day, write. Make your writing better. Study writing. Study your craft. And write authentically. Don't try to bend. We all know that the publishing industry is, for the most part, white. Um, But don't try to bend your message and bend your voice to fit in with what you think will sell or what people want to hear. Write for your authentic audience and your work will find its place. Mm, Yeah, that's great. Wow, this has been fun. I I could (laughs) talk to you all day and uh, get your insights that are incredible. So... We're at the rapid fire part. So first, I have to ask you, in terms of being a writer, who are some of the more notable writers who have inspired you? I'll tell you who's inspiring me right now. It's Disha Filia. Her new book, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, just won the Penn Faulkner Award. She also is my dear, dear friend. She is one of the best writers I know, and I try to be inspired by her every day. Um, and if you don't have that book, buy it. Right. You know I am. <laughs> I know I am. It, is, it is amazing, and it is, it is written for us. Mm. Yeah, the title has drawn me in already. Yeah, it, it definitely has me. Okay. All right. So, favorite place in the world. Standing beside the shore of Lake Michigan, I miss my water. I am a, I I grew up, where I grew up, it's in the dunes uh, near the National Lakeshore of Indiana. Mm -hmm. So I grew up around the corner from Lake Michigan. And I miss, you know, being able to like stand in my parents' driveway and hear those waves coming in. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. That's, 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 that's real. That's real. And that's causing me to reflect as well. So favorite, like if you could, if you could only have one meal, if you could only have one meal for the rest of your life, what would that be? Oh, man. I love seafood. So probably shrimp, probably something like that, or boned and buttered perch. Another delicacy of Northwest Indiana. Okay. Seafood. Seafood. I'm all about seafood. Seafood. Yeah. All right. What would you say is your favorite movie soundtrack? Oh, man. You know, here's what. This movie didn't stand the test of time, but this soundtrack did. And that's the Love Jones soundtrack. Oh, my goodness. That was a great one. 
Now, as an adult, I look back on their relationship and go, okay, that was whack. But yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. But the soundtrack still slaps. <laughs> it slaps. <laughs> and just, you know, honestly, the vibe, love jo- the Love Jones vibe was, was everything. It, it really was. And it felt so, it felt like it was for me. Like I was in my 20s, I was living in Chicago at the time. You know, it was like, it was, it was like me. It was like, oh my God. (laughs) You thought you was living your best life? I thought I was. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And the last question is, if you could break bread with three influential women, who would they be and why? Angela Davis, Toni Morrison, Audre Lorde. And yes, I uh, realize Audre Lorde, Toni Morrison can't really do that. <laughs> but because they're such amazing women, I just, I want to know how Angela Davis endured, how she has managed to be this radical voice throughout her life. I want to know how Toni Morrison created a writing career. And, and also, I want to know like about Audre Lorde's feminism and how she found her feminism during an era when feminism was so white and when the Black mm-hmm. community was so resistant. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that's heavy. You just said a word there. Both extraordinary and prolific, uh, all of them. Yeah, and if, and, and, and if, for instance, a seat opened up <laughs> at the table, <laughs> I might also, I would love to sit down and talk to Coretta Scott King. Yeah. I, I feel like everyone knows her as MLK's wife. Mm-hmm. And I would, one, like to know what, what that was out, was, what that was like to be someone's partner through all of that. But also because she did a lot of work after he died. She was not just his widow. People overlook all the work she did for the Equal Rights Amendment and all of that stuff. And I just would rather hear about her and what she liked and, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I mean, just the stories I'm sure she could tell. Yep. Yeah. Real talk. Well, we have come to the end and hopefully it's just the beginning. This has been awesome. And I am just so thankful. Yeah, I am so thankful that you took time out of your schedule just to join me. I, I so appreciate it. And I can't wait to share your works, you know, with even more people. It's incredible. I'm just thankful that you are sharing this gift of yours with the world and with our Black girls and Black women. So as well as just women in general, because I think that the stories, the letters, they resonate across the board, I do believe. Thank you so, so, so much. Yeah, yeah. So what else is on the horizon in terms of what you're working on? So the next thing is the uh, Sisters Are All Right. So the expanded second edition of Sisters Are All Right coming up in October. And then I'm just sitting and thinking about what my next, what's the next book going to be? I haven't figured it out yet, but I have a few ideas. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to I can't wait to, to hear what's on the horizon even further down the line. So thank you again. And uh, so where can listeners follow you? 
listeners can follow me on my website at TamaraWinfreyHarris.com, uh, on Instagram at Tamara Winfrey Harris, on Twitter at WhatTammy, T-A-M-I said, and on Facebook at Tamara Winfrey Harris. All right. Thank you. And as far as purchasing your books, where's your preference? The book is available wherever books are sold, but I always recommend that people support local independent bookstores. It's been a really rough year for them and they need your help. If you have one in your town, you want it to stick around, then patronize it. If you wanna support uh, black owned bookstores, I can recommend a few like Mahogany Books in DC. You can order from them online. Um, Loyalty Books also in DC, Uncle Bobby's in Philly, or bookshop.org. All right. That's awesome. So is there anything that I didn't cover that you would want to share to the listeners or with the listeners? I don't think so. This has been amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to... level up a bit. Um, This has been a journey for me. So I thank you for joining me again. And I, I just look forward to all the wonderful work that you're doing and will continue to do and just how you're impacting the lives of Black girls and Black women. I thank you. Thank you. I had such a wonderful time holding space with Tamara today. She is such a joy to chat with. So many gems, so many insights. And I just want to thank her for her wonderful work, her book. Just truly amazing, dear Black girl. And also wanted to shout out to the many women who contributed these beautiful letters to young women. You know, I want to thank them for sharing their heart and a piece of their journey as well as to the wonderful illustrator, beautiful work on the cover. I tell you, when Black women get together, it is truly Black girl magic. And I look forward to all the wonderful things that Tamara Winfrey Harris has in store. Remember, you can follow her and connect with her. I will leave her information in the show notes where you can read more articles, as well as access her her books. I can't wait for what's on the horizon for her. So I thank her again. And also, if you want to connect with me, reach out to me at interiormotivespodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's interiormotivespodcast at gmail.com. I want to thank you again, listeners, for all your support and all the positive feedback. I just thank you for tuning in. And so, as always, remember to love on yourselves and love on your family members. So until next time, be well and be blessed.